right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Adam Drovetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to a fun edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I hope they're all fun. I really do. But come on. How many times this weekend, Derek? I watched one of the games with you, so I know somewhat of this answer. How many times... This weekend, did you uh, start thinking it wouldn't, maybe not, would not be such a, and as fun. It would still mm-hmm. be fun, but not an as <laughs> yeah. fun edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Well, let's see. If we started with the Providence game, that one actually started out well to where even though KU wasn't playing well offensively, they were still up nine at halftime. And then they were up, I don't know, around kind of the eight to ten range for a while in the second half. And it felt like, okay, they're not playing great, but this is a Bill Self classic. Like, you were just uggling up the game. Bill Self's going to love this game. And then Providence came back. For that moment when Providence was from, like, down two to then, I think, up one for a little bit, um, you have the, the Remy Martin turnover before he takes the charge, yeah. which ended up being a huge play. There was there was that little moment, and then maybe through the last couple minutes of the game until maybe Ochai threw down that that amazing alley-oop dunk. That was a brief moment where it was like, uh-oh, is this really happening? And then um, I would say really the first half of yesterday's game, maybe once you got to, I don't know, there was a point where Dave started to take over early in the second half where it seemed like it was becoming apparent KU was going to flex their muscle there. Yeah. Excuse me. There was kind of one moment where, um, in even with, excuse me, I'm getting all choked up over mm. here. Um, even there was there was kind of this. I feel like I I felt really good after the and one that Dave that everybody saw that Dave flexed and it was you know that was a great play. Uh, I felt really really good after that, but there was still a piece of me. I don't know exactly when. I finally was just like, okay, we're good. Because there was still a part of me that was like, man, I can see this being, uh, you know, a game where they expend so much energy to come back. They get up by, you know, six. But then Miami turns around and cans a couple threes, and all of a sudden it's tied again, and you've wasted all that energy to come back and take a lead, and mm-hmm. now it's tied. Um Credit to them, and obviously that didn't happen. They just completely dominated in the second half. The Providence game, I felt weird at halftime because I just thought, man, the defense is playing great, but if they just can a couple just decent looks, they don't even need to be wide open. But if they just can a couple decent looks, this game's completely different. Um, And obviously the mood in your basement changed uh, once Providence took the lead, but... I just, you know, I, I, there was definitely yesterday, there was this, there was this point where I'm like, are we going to have to, because I've said for a long time um, that I think what's going on with Bill Self is just eventually there's going to be a big universal correction and he's going to peel off a lot of Elite Eight victories very close together. 
Um, two and four tournaments now. But then I was yesterday. I was sitting there going, and he's two and zero oh in his last two elite eights. And I was sitting there yesterday, and I was going, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is something fundamentally wrong. <laughs> and I and it just for whatever reason comes out in March and doesn't come out November through mm-hmm. early March. It, there's just and maybe it's something. And then all of a sudden, um. You just saw pure dominance, and for the first time, I don't know, probably since the last two minutes or so, you know, I think North Carolina, the last two minutes, I think it was in the Elite Eight, it was pretty clear Kansas was going to win that one. But I can't remember when you were when you were breathing easy at the end of an Elite Eight game with eight minutes to go like you were yesterday. Seriously. Um, and I think that's what it was. It, you know, if... If there weren't the past Elite Eight struggles, if there weren't the VCU game, for instance, I think if you're down six and a half where you didn't play very well, I don't, like, of course, it's March Madness, it's do or die, so you're still, there's going to be a brief moment of, uh uh-oh, what's going on, why are they down six and a half to a a double-digit seed? But given all that past history, did make, I don't know, maybe a a little more worrisome, at least I thought. See, I felt, to compare it to a completely different game, I felt super, not optimistic isn't the right word, but somewhat calm at least. Um, In 2016, I was at Madison Square Garden for the, the Kansas game against Duke in the Champions Classic. And Kansas had just had a not good half, and they'd only scored like 28 or 29 points, and it was still a four or five point game. And I just kept sitting there thinking, man, Kansas has played terribly. Mm-hmm. They're, they're still in this game. If they just get their offense going. And it's funny how how that's such an easier thought to have. Couldn't you have that same thought, though, for the VCU game, and it just never happened? Well, sort of. But Kansas was down 18 at one point mm-hmm. against VCU. It was 31-13 to 13 against VCU. But that's my point, is even yesterday against Miami, it's so much easier to have that thought in a game in November than it is in a one and done right. tournament. Right. So I I you know, I, I said this at halftime. Um I still think it's it's true. If if KU loses that game, we're spending today obviously it's a very different conversation, but we're spending today talking about just very that. Like what is going on in Elite Eight games? Because it's not just that the record at that point, I think, would be three and six at KU in Elite Eight games. Yeah, because now it's four and five. Okay, four and five at KU so, yeah, now, the, so it would have been three and six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also the idea of now among those losses, it's not like you're losing to one or two seeds every time. Yeah, you've got the, okay, you can explain away two seed UCLA. Right. Or two seed Villanova, they exactly. won the title. Yeah, two seed UCLA was in San Jose, mm-hmm. two, and... and uh, two seed Nova. Georgia Tech goes to the title yeah, game, right? Georgia you were a four Tech, seed that Georgia year. Georgia Tech was a higher seed, mm-hmm. yeah, and you took them to overtime. But it's hard to explain away two losses yeah, to to double digit double digit seeds, seeds right? Um, and and the other one, you know, yes, the team had Dave, uh, uh, Steph Curry, but you you know the one Elite Eight win you would have had against a double digit seed, um, you know, they had a chance to to win. At the end, and, and by the way, we may or may not have a special guest who uh, mm-hmm. had a great seat for that game uh, a little later in the show. Yeah, Cole Aldridge going to join us at the top um, of the 5 o'clock hour. But and, but now it's just amazing what a difference a half makes. Cause it now really is. You're two, you know, you're 4 and 5 in, in Elite 8s instead of 3 and 6. Right. You're 2 and 1 against those 11 seeds, or those double-digit seeds, and you're coming off a game 
where you, I mean, it wasn't like Davidson where they need where they had a shot at the end. Right. You rolled them. Yeah, and and I think that's what it was. Like it at halftime when you're staring down a loss or or not a loss, but a, a deficit. Or before the game, if you're just viewing this from the standpoint of this is one an opportunity for Bill Stealth to try to continue to shake the narrative of the Elite Eight things. This is also you're the only one seed remaining. You are playing a double digit seed. Um, on top of that, you have already lost to that previous double digit seed. So this would be even worse if it were to happen again. And there is a possible, we don't know for sure, we don't know what's going to happen, but there is a possible postseason ban looming at some point in time whenever the NCAA case comes to match. So I, I said this at halftime, I still stand by it. If KU would have lost that game, that would have been one of the most disappointing losses, one of the worst losses of the Bill Self era. I don't say worst loss to say, like, Obviously, they've had other games where they've lost to worse teams. Yeah, they lost to Oral Roberts. But exactly. That was a game in November. Or, yeah, or they lost to Dayton earlier this year. Although Dayton might actually, yeah. you know, they're they're fine. But or they've had losses that have been by bigger amounts. Or they've had or, losses. Or Bucknell and Bradley yeah. worse seeds. Exactly. You've had losses that, in theory, are worse. But just in terms of all that information and what a win could do versus yeah. what a loss would have done. There's a huge discrepancy. That here. I think so. The 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 Bucknell loss, like the VCU loss, is probably number one on that, that list. That was super. Yeah, that last because, yesterday, if you lose, that's probably top five. Because so now the final four that year really it opened up for Kansas. They would have played an eight seed Butler, and had they won that, they would have played a three seed UConn for the national championship. And this year, they're they're still favored in their final four game, um, but it, it you know but the the the. It, we talked about. Look, we we said it uh, last week. It very in no uncertain terms. It's a the way the bracket fell. It is a disappointment if you don't make the final four. Um, and and um, and yeah, I think it it would have ranked right up there because the the Bucknell loss. It was a fourteen over a three, but the mood around the program at that time, that team had kind of gone from mid January being one of the two best teams in the country to really really struggling down the stretch and I don't think many people anticipated a deep run anyway no um Bradley was kind of a different mood it was disappointing but that was a four seed that had kind of already proven itself as just they they peeled off you know 16 out of 17 wins or something crazy they were one of the hottest teams in the country so coming away from that loss it was really disappointing but that was before everybody left early and before the transfer portal so you knew you were getting back one of the most talented teams in the country that had begun to play to its talent. So you knew you we were getting back a team that was going to start ranked in the top five the next year. This would have been um, one of those where you're, you know, you're losing a lot um, and you're throwing away. It just, it's a crummy feeling to throw away a golden opportunity. Yeah, and that's but we don't exactly have to worry about it. it. That's exactly what would have happened, but you didn't throw away. And Bill Self, I think, said it really well. Um, you know, you, they played in the first half as trying to kind of avoid the loss, whereas the second half they were going to take a win. Mm -hmm. And they absolutely obliterated Miami in the way you would kind of expect. I mean, they, they played their second. They outscored uh, Miami in the second half worse than they outscored Texas Southern. In the in the first half of the, sweep, of the round of six, sixty four game, they out, it was forty seven nineteen at halftime of the Texas Southern game. 
They outscored <laughs> Miami 47 to 15 yesterday. That is remarkable. That second half was something to behold. And it wasn't just the entire second half, really, because Miami was sitting on, I don't know, 40 points with what, like 12 well, I, minutes left? We, looked, we went to Allen Fieldhouse uh-huh. last night, and I was, re- I was going back through it. They had either 40 or 42 points before the un- I think they had 42 before they ended with the, 50. The, yeah, at, at, at the very mo- they had at the very least 40 and I think 42 before the under 16 timeout. It was like 16:35 left and they had either 40 or 42 points and they ended with 50 of them. Well, and and it's it almost felt like a like you've been building this thing up. I mean, uh, the Texas Southern game is the exception. The offense was great in the Texas Southern game. Everything was great in the Texas Southern game. There's one sixteen exactly, and Texas Southern was not a very good sixteen at that. Like you watch Georgia State, you watch Texas Southern. There's differences in those two sixteen seats. Um, the Creighton game, your offense struggled a little bit. You didn't have the most efficient game. Uh, one of your stars, Ochai, took a while to get going until really the the end of the game. Uh, the Providence game, obviously the offense was was poor in that game for KU, and part of it, Providence played really well defensively, and they seemed to know a lot of the different plays KU was running. They were calling them out and stuff on, on the court and everything. And then the first half against Miami, the offense wasn't getting going. 0 for 5 from 3, you weren't shooting efficiently from the field. And to that point, you're talking... I mean, if you want to even include the second half of the Texas Southern game where the offense dropped up a little, even though it was I, mostly because backups. Yeah, I don't really count that. But well, that's not I, At the very least, you count that's five halves in a row. Exactly. That's two halves against Creighton, two halves against Providence, and a half against Miami. And then you turned it on. Oh, God, you? Did you? showed how, you know, if you look at Ken Palm now, Kansas is like number seven in offense because of some of these recent lulls, and that kind of dates back to the last week of the regular season too. But once again in the second half, they showed why at certain points we have thought is this as one of the the best, most efficient, uh, most elite offenses in the country. It was almost like, they did, and, and this isn't a perfect comparison because they look very in control and composed, but it was almost like, you know, you get a, 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 an ex, a, a, a like freakishly strong fighter mm-hmm. backed up in the corner, and then all of a sudden the fighter looks around and goes, I'm 300 pounds of pure muscle. <laughs> the person in front of me is 160. What the hell's happening? They might do something crazy and beat me here, but I'm going to throw some punches on my way down. Um, and that, that what it felt like, it was just, it, it was... I'd be interested to know what Self told him. Because I I know that sometimes, I mean... There's actually an answer to that. Um, gosh, I, I, I don't want to mistake who wrote this. It was either... Uh, I thought it was Jesse Newell, but it, it might have been um, Sam McDowell okay. from the Kansas City Star. I know it was from the Kansas City Star, so I'm sorry because there was a bunch of good pieces. Yeah, Vahe Va- yeah. wrote a great piece about his dad, so Self's dad and his family. I'm kind of grinding heads in my gears trying to figure out who wrote which one because they were all great. Um, but about what was said in the locker well, room at halftime. Before and- you get into that, let me guess because I think it was much more – I think a lot of people watch movies and they just think coaches just go in and scream at halftime, which sometimes happens in real life, don't get me wrong. But I feel like there was probably – I think it was more of a, hey, let's calm down kind of session at halftime. I could be way wrong on that, but fire away on that. Yeah, Um. so this was Sam McDowell. Kansas City Star, so you can check this out, and we'll have Jesse on. The newest on. columnist. Yes, they that's right. They said, we just got rid of a Sam M. Mm-hmm. We better get another. It's uh, Players pointed out at halftime, 
they thought they were going to be yelled at and self came in and basically took a deep breath and then just matter of factly provided some tweaks for the second half. So he basically walked in and calmly said, Hey, all right, rebound better. Whatever he said. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. The communication, the, 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 a coach um, actually shoot some threes. Yeah. The, the coach that, um, cause it, that was the other thing is I kind of thought, all right, if this team's going to lose, they're going to lose clanking a lot of open threes because they weren't taking bad threes. I I mean, Reggie Miller, and I, I, I agree with him. He kind of got on Ochai for not attacking, and I agree. I think Ochai could stand to attack a little more. He could get a little Remy in him. Um, but, if you know, there was the moment where he had the guy on him. He could have turned around with a pretty good look at the basket with a guy much shorter than him. Instead, he kicks it out to Christian Brown. Brown misses the three. That that was, maybe it was smarter to just attack the smaller defender if you're Ochai. But you got an open look. So the threes that KU was missing in the first half, I thought were good shots. I didn't see a lot of shots in the first half that made me. I saw a lot of, why didn't that go in? That was a good shot. But I didn't see a, what the hell are you taking that for? Any shots like that. The and cool it, part about what has happened now with KU winning this game, regardless of what happens from here. Um, and I think it gets added on to this year because after you win the Providence game, you're now the the winningest basketball program. But no matter what happens from here, once you make a Final Four, you've done something. You've done something big. And and that doesn't take away from teams that haven't done it because they're still great teams. Yeah. You can still win the Big 12 and win the Big 12 tournament. Like, I still consider, have a great season. You can have Oregon. The team that lost to Oregon in the Elite Eight, I still consider that a great team yes. and a great season. But I would stop short of calling it a self always says after you know after the team won the Big 12 he said it's already been a great season now you have a chance to make it special. And and that's why you know this team is in the air of special. Yes. And and it's crazy. We went from several different moments throughout the season of doubt which I think were fair at the time to ask and this team's we're, accomplished a lot. We're coming up on the two month I think it was the 29th or 30th. We're coming up on the two month anniversary of Kansas getting rolled by Kentucky and that's kind of part of the beauty of how that you felt about how all of us felt about this team after that yeah well it's just kind of part of the beauty of making the final four it washes away your your past sins and I mean think of all though you mentioned the 2017 team think about all the great KU teams that as great as they were they still didn't make the final four 1996 1997 yeah, 2017 I mean, um, was CJ C- Moore had that great profile in the mm-hmm. athletic about 97 2017 was basically the title team with Julian Wright 2010 2011 2013 2016 2017 Paul Pierce, yep. Rafe LaFrance, I mean, Jacques Vaughn. Jacques Vaughn, the list goes on and on and on. These players did. Ochai Agbaji, who was laboring for the past few games a little bit, the court, based on, you know, his high bar, went off. You went 8 of 12. He had 18 yeah, he points. Was he was ultra-efficient. He, he did only, it. He only These shot, players did it. He only shot two threes, but he made them both. It's special. It's extremely difficult to achieve. There's um, a reason. You're at a place like Kansas. Um, and look, I, I, I know we kind of are talking and I think today, I think it's going to be a lot of celebration, but we do still, there's, there's more games to talk about. I I know for anybody listening, I know we're talking, 
in terms of, well, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, the season isn't over. And that's right. We still have more games to talk about. But for the time being, I do think it's important to kind of celebrate what happened yesterday um, for that exact reason. When you're at Kansas, they don't hang a new banner. The only reason they would hang a new banner for a conference championship at Kansas is because the old one is filled up. Yeah. And you can only fit, what do they put, nine years at a time on those things. And so, you know, you you just, you you sew in a new year to an already existing banner after you've won the conference. This There's going to be, we were sitting at Allen Fieldhouse last night, and I was looking at that 2018 banner from the Final Four and thinking, another one's going up. Pretty cool stuff, and who knows? Uh, I know there's more insight for them. We'll talk about that throughout the week, but... Um, just pretty cool. Okay, you go into the Final Four, and that'll never get old. He's Adam Dravet. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. David Lesky will join the show in 15 minutes. We're going to be joined, as Adam said, Cole Aldridge is going to come on at 5 o'clock. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Half past the hour, David Lesky will join us in 10 minutes with Adam Rivetta, Derek Johnson on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Quickly before we get to our daily poll, a fun fact from Adam Dravet. I don't know. Is it a fun so, fact? I think it is. is. Just a this fact? actually comes, uh, I got this in my email, uh, comes from uh, Clinice, is it Hills? Yeah. Uh, who does. Those uh, are mornings. Yeah. Uh, some mornings. She does uh, great, some great programs, some great profiles here. She actually sent this to me, uh, sent this to a group of us in the, in the email. So you have three schools have coaches who have won 30 or more tournament games. Bill Self and Roy Williams at Kansas, Roy Williams and Dean Smith at North Carolina, John Calipari and Adolph Rupp at Kentucky. What do they all have, com- have in common? Ties to Kansas. They all played or coached at Kansas mm. at one point. Pretty special. All roads lead back to Lawrence. Yes, they do. Jay Wright's got to have something in there, right? Can we come up with some like sixth degree of Kevin Bacon? Yeah, let's find. So we can take credit for Jay Wright. Yeah, let's. Well, how old's Jay Wright? If Self retires when he's seventy, we can mm-hmm. hire Jay Wright. There we go. <laughs> He'll have a connection. How to old Lawrence. is Jay Wright? I don't know. Been I, there for a I while. He is uh, sixty. What? Is Jay Wright is older than Bill Self. I thought Bill just turned sixty. Bill's fifty-eight. The same age. Wait, am I wrong? Bill's fifty-nine. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to overdate him. Jay Wright is older than Bill Self. Did you look up the J? Did you look up like is he is he Jay Wright Jr. and you looked up his dad? <laughs> Jay Wright is sixty. What's more surprising that Jay Wright or, Len- or Leonard Hamilton? However old he is nowadays. No, well I knew Hamilton's seventy three. Maybe that's less surprising because I've known Leonard Hamilton's age. Mm-hmm. It's like how Will Shatner, William Shatner's like ninety. Mm-hmm. You're like what? To quote, uh, to 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 paraphrase a quote from uh, Christmas Vacation. If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I would not be as surprised as I am. <laughs> Jay Wright is 60 years old. Man, he must eat a lot of carrots. He's looking good. Golly. Uh, our daily poll of the day. This is something that I'm interested in. What was the turning point of the game for you? Um, I think there are a lot of options you could go with. Really, anything that happened in the early second half. Um 
I think you could argue the the KJ Adams defensive stop when he he only played like thirty seconds, but it was a big thirty seconds of the game makes that, that big, was such a big great contest that, that even felt at that moment I like that I I I just kept man if they don't score here I just I kept thinking that's gonna be a moment that felt like um, the Daniel Sorensen. Maybe not. I was going to compare it to the Daniel Sorensen tackle on the the fake fourth down, the the fake punt against the Texans. But even then, Kansas City had kind of grown some momentum. KU had no momentum at that point. No. Miami was on a nine to two run, and he was guarding the dude who was on. He had fourteen in the first half. Was Kim McGusky. fire. Yeah. Um, that was a big play. That was a really important play. So, I, like, I, I think I, I wouldn't call it. To me, it wasn't the turning point because at the moment, mm-hmm. I didn't. At the moment, I was still but kind looking of looking back. That was huge. Yeah, um, Browns three. I that to, was big to me. I would probably say, for me, when I finally was like, okay, this team is eating. Is uh, is it was Dave Can in the end one because it was kind of an off balance. Um, I don't know how he made that. Yeah, it was a great, great shot to fall. Um, Jalen Wilson should have been called for an and one earlier uh, in that in that kind of that was sequence. a ridiculous layup. And the make. fact yeah. that he made that one, but he should have gone to the free throw line there. Uh, but Dave Dave getting the and one and then actually making the free throw after the team shot three for I don't know a thousand or whatever it was <laughs> in the first half. Um, that was to me the moment. Yeah, uh, I think I would agree with the McCormick and one that really felt like it turned it. As far as like the nail in the coffin play, I think it was either the Ochai three after Jalen and Ochai couldn't get the transition originally, and then they got it back and tipped it around. And it went back out to Ochai in the corner. Either that or the Remy Martin straight on three would be like the the. You know, it wasn't officially over. Yeah, but it it kind of felt like it was. Yeah, there there were moments in that game where you could just yeah I the the Remy one probably if we're going turning points I'll stick with Dave. But you're right, that Remy three was just any thought that they're going to do some miracle, like KU versus West Virginia, 14 mm-hmm. points in a couple minutes. or like Any thought that they're about to pull off one of these all-time comebacks, I think, just went away. It was just, I just, Remy can that three, and you're just like, Kansas isn't losing this game. No. That, that felt like the, um, again, I keep, I don't even, I'm not even, I didn't plan to do this, but. To make another comparison, that felt like the um, the dagger with the long Sammy Watkins touchdown against the Titans in the AFC Championship. Yeah, you know what I mean, like that that wasn't the moment that turned the game, but it was the moment where you could finally be finally kind of think, all right, let's plan to go to Mass Street. Yeah, the more I think, I might actually vote the Brown three just because there were so many open ones that he passed up on in the first half. So for him to actually take it and then knock it in, and it he felt... Was, I loved his face. He was emotional yes. after that. And that, that's one of the best things about Christian Brown, how excited he gets. But that was a big play, not just because it went in and it gave you your first lead in a while, but also it was like, oh, we finally hit a three. That was their first three of the day. And it's like a guy who is a really good three-point shooter is taking them, and now he's hitting them. Uh, but I, I think you can make an argument for a lot of different ones. All right, we're going to take a time out here. David Lesky, Inside the Crown, is going to join us next as we switch gears, talk a little Royals baseball with the season right around the corner. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, depending on it. Plenty more KU basketball talk throughout the show today on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, but baseball season right around the corner and joined on a Monday by David Lesky 
of Inside the Crown. So, uh, David, right now the Royals are uh, putting it on early. I think 7 nothing in the first inning or after the first inning of play right now. Um, for some of the people maybe here who you know, spent most of the weekend paying attention to KU, the Final Four and everything, what have they missed of late with the Royals at spring training? I thought spring training was the only thing going on right now. I didn't realize there was <laughs> any basketball. Um, <laughs> no, they uh, haven't missed much because it's, it's funny because spring training has, in my opinion, three very distinct parts once you get to the games. And it's the early games where you are as locked in as anybody can be to a game that doesn't matter. And you're, you know, you're not hanging on every pitch, but you're following along, you're excited, all that. And then there's that middle section, which is um, dull as anything because it's just guys, I mean, getting their work in, really. And then you've got that last part where it's, you start to pay a little more attention because you, you see your starters play nine innings and starting pitcher goes five or six innings instead of two or three and all that. We're kind of in that middle section right now, but also in the beginning section and also kind of at the end because of the short spring. And so there's, um, there's a lot of different spring trainings happening all at once right now. And so it, it's, it's interesting because you've got situations like, like yesterday's game, for example, the Royals lost 13 to 12. Um, they were up 10 to four. And you look at that and you go, well, that's terrible. Josh Stalmont gave up this and that, but like it was his second outing of the spring, <laughs> but it's also 10 days until opening day. So it's, it's kind of hard to really gauge anything right now, but, um, you know, seven, nothing in the first is good. I'll take that. <laughs> um, how do you properly, I guess, judge what you're seeing in, in spring training? Because, you know, we, we see all the time maybe a guy hits 400, but then it doesn't carry over to the season, or maybe a guy struggles and only hits, you know, 120 or something, and then all of a sudden they, they hit the tear off the baseball to start things off. So what what are you kind of evaluating in terms of uh, what you're watching for, like what matters, what doesn't matter, and, and all that stuff as you're looking through these games? Yeah, I mean, on, on, a, on a broader spectrum, <laughs> you – you kind of look at a couple of things. Who they're facing is one. Um, baseball Reference has a great opponent quality score. Um, if, if you look up what their spring training stats are, and I think 10 is, 10 is a major leaguer, 8 is a triple-A player, 6 is a double-A, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, if you see a guy hitting 730 with four home runs and his opponent's quality is 4.8, you go, okay, well, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt. But if it's 8.5, you think, okay, these are a lot of triple-A and big leaguers. So that – that's one thing. Um, another thing you look for, really, it's hard when you're not watching. Um, but for a hitter, the quality of swing for a pitcher location to me is a really big deal because I think that's kind of the last thing to come for a guy before the season starts. And movement. I think movement's really interesting, too, um, because if a guy's got that going, he's starting to really ramp up from the pitching side. But, you know, I mean, the, the biggest thing you have to do with spring training is take everything with a grain of salt because – even if a guy has three home runs against big leaguers, I mean, I don't know how many games you've watched, but there are or, or seen in Arizona, I mean, you've seen a few in, in your life. I'm sure that the ball carries. <laughs> it is the wind blows there. It, it's thin air. There are a lot of home runs that are hit in Arizona that are like in front of the warning track at Kauffman Stadium, and so it, it's difficult to evaluate. And you kind of have to hope that you're right, I guess. I mean, it doesn't really matter if I'm wrong necessarily, but if you're Dayton Moore, J.J. Piccolo, or Mike Matheny, you got to hope you're right there. Um, because 
sometimes there are mirages that are just, you know, you, you, it's, it's hard to see if they are mirages or not. Um, and it's just, it's, a, it's an interesting time. I think it's, I don't know, for, for the hardcore baseball fan, it's really fun, I think. Who do you view as being the biggest stock risers and, and maybe stock fallers so far for the spring? Well, I mean, I think Edward Olivares has put himself in a position to to make the team potentially. Um, Kyle Isbell as well, and they they kind of go hand in hand because I don't. It's kind of hard to see how both of them make the team um, with, with the way they're currently set up. So that that'll be an interesting battle to watch. I think that uh, MJ Melendez has done a really nice job putting himself maybe not in a position for an opening day spot, but <clears throat> yeah, I think I think there was some question not. Not in a malicious way or anything, but just some question of how real last season was for him. And he was awesome, obviously. 41 home runs, um, you know, 390 something on base percentage. He was, he was fantastic. Um, he's come out this spring and he has shown he can hit big league pitching. <laughs> he's, he's been fantastic this spring. So he, he's put himself in a position where the Royals are looking to get him in other positions in anticipation of him coming to the big leagues, which tells me it's sooner than later. Um, I also think. Colin Snyder out in the bullpen has done a really nice job. And it, it's all limited is the thing. They played nine games. You know, there's, there's only so many innings out there and at-bats out there to give. But Colin Snyder's done a really nice job of putting himself on the map. Again, maybe not for opening day, although they are expanding the rosters and there's no pitcher limit. So instead of having a limit of 13, they could go, I mean, technically as many as 17 if they don't want to have a bench. But um, I think they're going to go 16 pitchers. At a minimum, fifteen. So Colin Snyder has put himself in the conversation to be one of those, and Angel Zerpa too. He's been a guy who he, he didn't look good yesterday. Um, the control wasn't there. I, I I thought he looked okay, just couldn't couldn't quite get the. He was trying for the edge, and he just kept missing it by just a, by, by a barely a, a little amount. Um, and that happened, but I, I think the Royals like what he's given. I think they like his command. I think they like the fact that starters are probably not going to go much more than five innings for the first couple of weeks. So it'd be good to have a guy who can go three or four behind him. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think, I think he's, he's a big riser. And yeah, the funny thing is there aren't a ton of fallers right now. I mean, it, is this guy, you know, is a, is a minor league invite. I don't think he's going to make the team, but, other than him, guy, the guys who are having tough springs are guys who are on the roster regardless. So I, it's it, it made the job more difficult for the Royals, but that's a good problem to have. Yeah, that definitely is. Obviously, you'd rather be in that situation. And um, having the 28-man roster to open things up now, how, how does that change things for people? What do you think is the most likely construction for how they put that together? Is it just 14 and 14 with pitchers and hitters? No, I mean, I, I'd be I'd be shocked if they have less than 15 pitchers. Um, because originally the plan, going back before 2020, they expanded the rosters to 26, and it was going to be a maximum of 13 pitchers. Well, obviously the COVID season changed that. And then last year they, they had the 26-man roster, but they didn't put the limit on there. Um, and now this year they're expanding rosters early. And the, the word is May 2nd, when it goes back to regular rosters, there will be a maximum of 13 pitchers. But until then, it's a free-for-all. And I, yeah, they're going to keep three guys on the bench. I don't, I don't think you're going to see a two-man bench. I shouldn't say that with, with a huge amount of confidence. But um, I, I would, until they tell me they're keeping 15 pitchers instead of 16, I'm going to assume it's 16. 
And I think you're you're probably not going to see a non-roster guy make that at this point. Brad, Brad Peacock and Vizcaino are the two who I think have the best chance. Jace Vines also, but he hasn't been great either. Um, but, you know, that, that opens up a spot. John Heasley, Zerpa, Colin Snyder, who I mentioned. Um, you know, we haven't, we haven't seen Nathan Webb, who was also added to the 40-man roster. So he doesn't really have much of a chance, I don't think. But, I mean, they, they, there's a few guys who... I, you know, if they want three or four innings, I think I think you're going to see a bullpen that has starters in it. I I think whereas maybe Jackson Coar wasn't going to make the team, I think maybe he's a long reliever, stuff like something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like I said, until I'm told otherwise, I, I'm going to assume it's 12 hitters and 16 pitchers. Well, they're running out of time if they want to make any other transactions before the season. I know uh, Michael Conforto is still out there, a guy that you've mentioned multiple times is maybe being a good fit for the Royals. Do you think they are done making moves at this point? Or do you think the fact that a guy like Conforto is still available at this point only would help a team like the Royals because clearly the market isn't there? You know, I, I think he'd be a great fit. If you can add a high on base lefty bat to the middle of that order, obviously I think that makes them better. Um, I just I don't think it's going to happen because at, at this point um, they are they're pretty well set with Lopez at second, Mondesi at short, Witt Jr. at third, and Witt Merrifield in right field. You know I I don't love it. I've talked about that before. It's it's fine. I, I get it. Um, I also think that with Kyle Isbell and Edward Olivares having the big springs they're having, that it probably it probably takes them out of that even more than they already were out of it. Um, boy, I still think it would be a good move. I, you know, I think if they're going to do something, it's they they, they want to move Santana. They still do. That hasn't changed. Um, at this point, it's become a, a waiting game till a team needs a first baseman. Basically, I mean, it's it, it's a matter of does a contender lose their first baseman on March 31st or April 5th or whatever date. And say in panic, and say we need to, we need Carlos Santana or anybody. And I, I think it could happen, but I think it's more likely to happen during the season at some point, or Santana plays himself out of a role. But otherwise, it kind of feels like they're about done. I I keep hearing that they're still in on Frankie Montas, and the A's are. I don't know. I guess they're being kind of shifty about it <laughs> because my the the original. Um, the, the original thought that I that I had heard was they were going to trade Montas first and then take the losers of that and have and have them bid for Manaya, which makes sense because Montas is going to bring back more and all that. And now it seems like they're holding back on Montas, so I don't know what's going on there. I don't think that's going to happen before opening day either. So I think, you know, and like I said, unless somebody is desperate for Carlos Santana, I think they're done. I'm sure you saw the Bobby Witt Jr. swing to Mike Trout comparisons that were kind of surfacing all over uh, social media. So is this just the second coming of Mike Trout? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the sound on some of those home runs, though, is insane. Like if you just you know turn off that, forget that part of it, and you just hear it coming off the bat. It, I know it's such a cliche to like, oh, the sound of the ball coming off the bat, but like. It just it sounds different. What is a realistic expectation for Bobby Witt Jr. in his rookie season? To be honest, I don't know. <laughs> because it, 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 as, as a reasonable thought, 
it's like, okay, 270, 25 home runs, 80 RBIs, 25 to 30 steals, really good defense at third base. And you you think, okay, that, that's really good. But then you watch him play and you're like, I, I don't know why he can't do better than that. I, I know that so few rookies actually do better than that, but I, I don't, I don't know what the limit is. <laughs> I really don't. And it's, it's crazy to be saying that, and I'm, I'm I'm usually the guy who's like, "Hang on, rookies struggle. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a tougher road than you think." And then I see him play, and, and it, like I said, it's like you look at him and you go, I, "Why can't he hit 300 with 35 homers and 40 steals and and, and all this?" And it, it's I don't know. It's it just it's tough to put a put a number on that because it, it really does feel like the sky's the limit. Uh, I mean. Is it crazy to think that he could lead the team in war in 2022? Not that that's like the be no, all and all. No, I mean, I think his position's going to hurt him a little bit because if he was playing shortstop, I would say I would put money on Bobby Wood Jr. leading the team in war. But at third base, he loses a little bit of, a little bit of that positional value. Um, but <laughs> if you look around the diamond, I don't. I don't think you can make a strong argument that there's a better overall player on the team already. And that, that I hate saying that because he's a, he's a rookie. He's never played a big league game. And you look at the guy and you're like, yeah, he's the best player on the team. And it's, it's, you don't even think too much about it. And so it's, I, I struggle with that. But at the same time, <laughs> look what he can do. The guy has, I mean, he can do everything. So, no, I don't. I don't think it's crazy. I mean, I, I don't know that I would necessarily predict it, but I also don't know that I wouldn't. What's the the long term then? I guess uh, expectation for him. I know it's maybe harder to do this rookie year, but like, is it is it that crazy to think that he could be a top five, top ten player in the majors in a few years? No, I mean, <laughs> this is he is he's the most talented player they've had in their system since Beltron. Maybe I guess. Um, I mean, I, I might be missing somebody. I don't think I am, but uh, I mean, he he does everything. He plays great defense. He runs. He gets for power. He. I, I think the the average will come might might be a little bit later down the road. Maybe not. I mean, year two or three, not not like year ten. Um, I, there, there, there's nothing he can't do on a baseball field, and there's no reason why he can't be perennially if not top five, top 10 for MVP in the American league, it's just the skills are there. Everything is there for him. Uh, David, I, this is Adam. I have a random question along the lines of, um, of Bobby Witt jr. If this isn't the guy that comes out and starts smoking it right away, I'm not saying he needs to win rookie of the year, but I think he has to probably finish top two or three. If, If this, if he's not the guy that comes out and just rolls right away when he gets to the majors, does it is it does it does it become more and more fair to kind of question why can't this as great as this regime has been with getting World Series why don't they seem to have players who just be great right out of the gates? I think it's a fair question, um, but I also think we have to remember that they went back and they overhauled everything after 2019, and so if it's not wit, I, look, it may not it, this. The development system that they've got in place in the minors might not translate to the majors. But the thing is, we just don't know. We know it translates to the minors because we saw it happen last year. So we, we, we know that pretty much beyond a doubt. 
we'll find out about that. I don't, I don't think if Witt doesn't come out blazing it, that, that says anything. I mean, look at Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He's, by all accounts, one of the top three or four hitters in baseball now. And the first year and a half of his career was just kind of okay. He was fine. He wasn't bad. I mean, you would take it, <laughs> but he wasn't the guy he was touted to be, and he's not. he wasn't the guy he is now. And so I, I think it's important to remember that most prospects don't come out smoking it. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, I think if anybody's going to, it feels like Wit is the guy who will. But most guys don't. And so I, I, think, um, I, I think we have to keep that perspective. But I also think that we are at a point where these guys are graduating to the majors that the, the minor league overhaul they made a couple of years ago is now being, now being seen. Now we have that opportunity to see how it works, and we'll find out. I think it'll work. Um, but, you know, these guys are starting to make it, so we're going to find out soon. Well, the Royals have already extended their lead up to nine nothing, which means two, on, two homers by Benintendi yeah, so far. On, by the way, on the pace of uh, yep. us talking with David, the Royals are expected to win infinity to zero. So that's a positive. Um, David, <laughs> uh, before we let you go, one last thing with Adam. All right, David. Uh, one last thing. What puts you at a higher risk of being eaten by a monster? Walking up the stairs after you've turned the basement lights out or sleeping with your leg off the side of the bed? Oh, man. I mean, guys, it's tough because it, the reality is they both bring out the monsters. I yes, mean, they do. That's, that's irrefutable. We cannot argue that. I, I think it's a leg off the bed. And that really concerns me to say that because sometimes I get hot and I, I kick my leg out and, and it scares me every night. And now I'm, and now I'm never going to sleep again. So well, thank you. If you're not back on next week, we'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> he is David Lusky. You can uh, check out all his work at Inside the Crown. David, appreciate you coming on as always, man. Yep, thanks, guys. All right, that's David Lusky, Inside the Crown. He's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to RCST on KLWN. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was, right now, on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. All right, it is Monday. Not a lot of case of the Mondays going on here in Lawrence. So, I mean, maybe. Maybe case of the Mondays because you partied too hard yesterday. But no case of the Mondays in terms of, you know, not feeling up not th- today. Not that I would condone this because academics are very important. Mm. Let me just tell you that it was my sophomore year at Kansas when they beat North Carolina in the Elite Eight to go to the Final Four in 2012. That game was a Sunday afternoon. I think that was actually the late Sunday afternoon game. Partied on Mass Street just like last night. Uh, grabbed some food afterwards, then went to Allen Fieldhouse to welcome back the team. And uh, all my professors, at the be- throughout my undergrad anyway, uh, all my professors said at the beginning of the year, you get three free absences. Your fourth absence will begin affecting your grade. You don't have to tell me why you're absent. 
just you got three of them and and that's you know just use them to your you know to your uh, decision making um discretion i guess is the word i'm looking for so uh i uh got to bed after sunday night and uh went on and, and didn't even set the alarm i was like this is <laughs> this is one of the three i'm not going to class tomorrow so I hope if, I hope you had some absences saved up for this exact kind of occasion. All right. Well, let's get the music rolling for this case of the Mondays on your Monday. First up to that notion, I think Remy Martin is having a case of the Mondays today. Again, this is more in the category not of, you know, you feel poorly. I'm sure he feels upbeat and happy where things are going. Um, I'm assuming Remy, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm sure some of the players went out last night down to mass or uh at the the event where the the ku players were welcomed back and and stuff chris tehan said i'll see you guys in like 35 minutes or something like that at the triangle referring to the the bull the hawk and the wheel yeah um so i'm sure a bunch of the players went out there i don't know if remy did or not but there, there was this one funny moment where bill self was talking and he goes um and obviously everybody i hope you stay safe don't do anything stupid tonight and and you, Remy Martin is like a step or two behind him, a few yards to the, the right or left of him, and he's just shaking his head to the side. <laughs> like, no. Last night at Allen Fieldhouse, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Remy Martin had himself a good time. Deservedly hey, so. Do you, you remember that story? I didn't that, see anything in the news today, so whatever kind of good time yeah, he had, it was a good kind exactly. of good time. Exactly. Have, have as good of a time as you want, as long as you don't do anything sh- stupid, yeah, basically, right? Keep your name out of headlines. Do you remember that story that came out whatever five six years ago um are you gonna tell the brandon rush story no no i want to hear that after this because i don't i don't think i know what you're talking about uh 2016 i believe it was so ku had had just beaten connecticut in the second round and they were moving on to the sweet 16 they went on to play maryland and and then they beat maryland and then the villanova game happened in the elite eight um and after they had won their second round game the players came back and um i'm pretty sure it was spring break week or something like that too but uh, Wayne Selden, there was like a picture of him in the Hawk after they'd won their second round game between their third round game. There's like four days in between the game and everything. And some media outlet, it might have been ESPN actually, I, I, I could be wrong on that, picked it up and was like, can you believe this? Like, this kid has some of the biggest basketball games in his life. It's like, oh my goodness. Shut up. Unbelievable. Yeah. What's the Brandon Rush story? No, this one wasn't during the tournament. Yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. It, it wasn't. The coaches set pretty strict rules about when, you know, they check in on if you're in your dorm when you're supposed like, if he was out, Self was okay with him being out. Let's just be clear about that. Yeah. Um, and, oh, by the way, it, it didn't affect, you know, it, regardless. Um, no, the Brandon Rush one, this was during the regular season. This was a story that Self told years and years later. It might have been when the team came back in 2018 to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the title. But anyway, at one time or another, Self is telling the story about Brandon Rush. Did he get his number retired? Yeah. Maybe it was then. A couple years ago. Maybe it was then that he was telling the story. But um, he was talking and uh, he was talking to the team and he said, did anybody break curfew last night? No, like he genuinely didn't know. Because, you know, coaches have a pretty tight control over things. But even some things slip through the cracks. And so he wasn't asking, like, hoping somebody would admit it because he already knew and he was going to bust him. He genuinely didn't know. He said, did anybody break curfew last night? 
And Brandon Rush raised his hand and said, "Yeah, I was out till about one." <laughs> and he goes, and, and everyone else, and the guy, the players obviously knew, mm-hmm. but Brandon told on himself. He was like, "Yeah, I was out till about one," and Self was like, "All right, Brandon, you want to tell me why?" And he goes, "Coach, the club was popping." <laughs> so I guess after that practice, he had some extra running for for Brandon. I'm sure it was one of those things where. <laughs> Easier for self to laugh about it when he was telling that story than when it actually... That feels like one of those things where when you're by yourself, like on self's drive home that night, I'm sure he was laughing about it, but you can't, in that moment, right. you can't acknowledge that it's funny. That's great. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was the case for Remy and some of the other guys. Uh, I just thought that was kind of a funny scene that happened. Uh, how about Case of the Mondays for Chris Rock's cheek? <laughs> <laughs> this was unbelievable. I was... I was so at, unbelievable it might be fake, but I, I don't we were, know. I don't think it is. We were there. Uh, we were there at Allen Fieldhouse last night, and I got a text from my friend, and I, I just see a text, and it just says Adam, <laughs> and the next text, all caps, Adam, and I go, yeah, and she she tells me, Will Smith just punched Chris Rock. <laughs> I go as like a sketch, yeah, and she goes, no, and I'm like, all right then, well. This, I I, this, I realized this last night. Okay, John Travolta calling Idina Menzel Adele Dazim. Um, them saying La La Land had won Best Picture instead of Moonlight, which was the actual winner. And last night, all these things happened within a freaking decade of each other. Think about that. I, there was a streaker at the, at the Oscars in 74, right before they were going to announce the... How do you get into the? Do they allow regular people? Oh, they regular you, you people. Can, yeah, you, you can buy. I mean. Yeah, you can like buy. Yeah, you can buy tickets to the, to the Oscars. Um, but in this case, some guy just snuck his way backstage as a commoner, um, stripped naked, and right before they were announced, going to announce the Best Picture nominees, he just went charging right, right across the stage. No, this in this, his birthday suit. This was one of those moments where it's like everyone on social media is talking about it at once. If you missed it, I don't know how, but Will Smith uh, was unhappy because Chris Rock was making some jokes. He included one about his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, um, and basically made fun of the fact that she doesn't have any hair, which she has alopecia, which is the reason for that. And uh, he went up. Now... If you watch, like, the Japanese or Australian versions of it... Yeah, they like, had uncut. Yes. In the American version, you're just like, wait, what just happened? And the American version almost makes it... Made, made it seem like it was almost staged. That everything it was, like, was muted. Exactly. But then you see those versions, and Will Smith is, like, yelling, keep my wife's bleeping name out your mouth, or something like that. Um, and he comes up, and he just straight up slaps him in the face... Chris Rock, I think, handled it very, very well. Another reason I think it wasn't staged was because if you look at Rock, his immediate, his like immediate, immediate reaction was he kind of bowed his bowed his arms and made a couple fists, like he caught him. So he obviously didn't swing back, but like he kind of had that immediate instinct of get ready. Yes, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It was what a it, weird, what a weird, weird thing. Seriously, do you think Will Smith's gonna get? Sued for I I, re- I read last night that Chris Rock was not going to file a police report. I don't know if it, there are certain um, types of of, and I'm obviously not a huge expert, but I do know that there are certain types of, um, and the reason I know this is because I uh, had a friend who once in high school stole a buddy's dirt bike as a joke, 
and the guy found out that it was him and it was just joking and he said i don't want to press charges and the cops said it's too late this isn't a matter of my point is, is it gets to there are certain crimes that it doesn't matter if the victim wants to press charges it's just, or it's not a crime. they're going yeah. to press charges because it it passes a certain threshold of, of criminality. I don't know if this is one of the cases or not. Well, do you think this is going to open up more comedians if somebody doesn't like their joke, somebody's just going to walk up and just pop them? <laughs> yeah. I mean... Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I guess there was no stopping that before. You just yeah. get arrested, probably. I don't know. It was just a weird... Um, I know that there's some of the... Uh, how can I put this? Um... Some of the uh, folk who don't like uh, that Hollywood is getting too political or whatever they have to say, um, basically some fringe lunatics are saying that it was all staged because the Oscars, everyone hates Hollywood getting more political and they're doing this to up the rating. <laughs> they called Vince McMahon. They, they're like, what can dude, we do? what can we do? He's like, send Will Smith up there to give him a stone cold <laughs> stunner. And he's like, well, I don't think we can do that. But what if um, we slap him? But yeah, that uh, would have been kind of funny if, like, you know, John Malkovich came behind him with a steel <laughs> chair or something. <laughs> or somebody came on, Chris Rogan's like holding him, like it's <laughs> one of those scenes from a gangster um, movie. Yeah, just I, letting yeah. him beat him up. Um, but it was, uh, it was just a weird, mm. you know. I, 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 uh, I don't know. I, I. I'll say this. I understand being really mad when somebody is saying things you don't like said about mm-hmm. somebody you love. I get that. Um, and I get the feeling of being so mad. I mean, I, I, in, in, I mean, I understand. I'm not saying it's right to do, but I understand being so mad that you want to smack. So I get that feeling. Um, uh, but I think that's one of those moments. Like you're taking a lot of people's event. The Oscars is a very important night to a lot of people who work very hard at their craft, and to steal attention away from them, um, just to settle that score. If you want to deck Chris Rock, go to an after party yeah, and deck Chris Rock. Yeah. Don't steal the spotlight away from everybody who's there to celebrate. I can't believe you want Best Actor, day. too, with that happening <laughs> to happen that day. Fantastic. So, Case of the Monday for Chris. Honestly, Case of the Mondays for Will Smith. Sure, Will ain't having a good yeah, day. Yeah, he probably doesn't feel great about that. Can you imagine what would have happened to Chris Rock if he was if he was, if Will Smith was as strong as he was in Hancock? <laughs> he would have <laughs> died. He would have lost his And head. then they're very much, they would have just stopped the Oscars. Yeah, that's probably yeah. true. Uh, how about Case of the Mondays for U.S. men's soccer haters? Suck it, haters. U.S. men's soccer Uh-oh. team. <laughs> every damn, every year, and every four years you get, and it actually is happening now more than every four years because it happens during the Women's World Cup too, as great as the women's team is. So now it's every two years. It happens during the Women's World Cup and during the Men's World Cup that you get these idiots who love to brag that they don't like soccer. I hate soccer. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> You don't, I hate yeah. on, I, I hate onions. I, I don't shout about That's it. That's what I don't understand. And this is a it's it's very something that like gets on Twitter. It's like cool to be like I hate this. This thing stinks. Yeah. It's like okay, cool. You don't have to poop on everyone's parade. When Kansas uh, or when Kansas when uh, at in Kansas City at the Power and Light District, when the U.S. Uh, almost beat and turned out to tie Portugal in 2014 to ultimately. That didn't officially, but it came very close to clinching them the berth in the round of 16, which they ultimately did advance to. 
Um, it was either that one or it was after they beat Ghana in uh, in the first match of group stage in 2014. Regardless, Sam Mellinger um, wrote a, a, an article, wrote a column that uh, the 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 headline was "What you missed while you were being too cool for soccer." <laughs> And he just talked about what a fun atmosphere it was down at the Power and Light District. Well, they destroyed Panama last night, and the importance of that, they had just drawn with Mexico earlier. Um, all they have to do now, just don't lose by six goals in their finale against Costa Rica. If they lose by five goals, they still make the World Cup. So just don't lose so by what six do you do? goals. What do you do? Do you If you think you're good enough to beat Costa Rica, you just, do you step up and try to beat them, or do you just do a full, like... Complete D, and not and like give Costa Rica eighty five minutes of possession and <laughs> and just let it happen. No, I think what you do I is think you, you play your regular. You go I, for the win, I'm but then no, if you get down two nothing, you're like, yeah. nope, we're we're parking the bus. I, I don't claim to know a bunch about soccer strategy, but I think in general you always play the game you're comfortable playing. Yes, agreed. So, good news for the U.S. men's national team. They'll likely be in the World Cup. Uh, how about Cardinals fans who may have previously th- – this is a specific sect of Cardinals fans. Yeah, go back and delete some tweets yes. about a certain uh, ex-Cardinal, now new Cardinal. If you said anything mean, if you burned anything, if you destroyed any jersey, if you got rid of anything Albert Pujols-related, joke's on you. You're having a case of the Mondays because he re-signed with the Cardinals today. Um, I think it's going to be his last season, one-year I, deal. I – Maybe, but I'll say this: it's uh, with the with the with the DH being universal, you never know. Um, but he is the thing about Albert Pujols is he could be anywhere from his stated age to eight years older than his stated age. <laughs> that's kind of how things went back then with players coming in uh, to the major leagues. Um, yeah, look, there were there's a a. a you know, a horse's ass contingent of every single fan base out there. And um, they were, show, you know, that contingent came out strong uh, when Albert Pujols left to go uh, to the Angels. Um, Very, yeah. Now he's back. And Wasn't I, as bad as LeBron leaving, but that was ridiculous. it did happen. Uh, how about last one case of the Mondays to casual golf fans? Because, you know, there's certain names, even. So a lot of people, it's oh, Tiger Woods or bust. If there's some cool story, you know, it, it happens, especially with the Masters coming up. Well, we are now a week away from the Masters, and the number one golfer in the world, Scotty Scheffler, who I don't think a lot of people know who Scotty Scheffler <laughs> is. Who that is. He's he's a tournament winning machine right now. Um, really good golfer, but again, doesn't have the big name variety. At least not right now. You go out and win the Masters next week. Everybody's going to know you at that point. Um, so casual golf pan, fans, you're having case of the Mondays today, and we'll see how that impacts the uh, viewership of the Masters. I don't think Tiger Woods is going to play. I don't know. Maybe I, he will. I say this. I don't think Tiger's close to playing to at that level. I mean, he played in that thing with his but, son. Yeah, but, but you wasn't... got to ride in a cart in that tournament. Yeah. Um, I uh, I think Tiger. One thing the the thing that I think it finally hit me the the insane popularity of Tiger. Because Jack Nicholas won a lot, Sam Snead won a lot. Um, granted, you know this was before cable television. Although Jack Nicholas got plenty of recognition, as did Arnold Palmer. Um, but the I think the the love for Tiger Woods came from the, the best way I can explain it. And if I were trying to explain um, to a kid who never watched Tiger what it was like, I think the reason he was so popular is golf is is a very cerebral. 
you know, calm, quiet sport. Tiger Woods played golf um, like a linebacker. <laughs> he played golf with an immense amount of aggression. And you don't see that in the game of golf. And that, I think, is what made and, and we've never seen anybody do that ever since. And, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be so difficult to, to ever. It's not just the fact that he was great. It was the fact that he was great and and had a hyper, hyper aggressive style in a sport that hyper aggressive styles are, are very few and far between. He's Adam Rivetta. I'm Derek Johnson. Certainly no case of the Mondays for either of us. We're going to take a timeout when we come back. Bill Self, a bunch of players spoke with the media yesterday after the Elite Eight win. We'll play that for you on the other side. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. About a quarter till five here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Coming up at the top of the five o'clock hour, you know him well, Cole Aldridge. She's going to come on the show. And we're going to talk a little about his Final Four experience and looking ahead to this Final Four for KU. We're going to try to really get a good guest lineup this week for you with the Final Four ahead. I'll never forget when, you know, Cole, obviously his last year was um, like Sharon's year. He was a beloved player, but sadly it ended um, earlier in the tournament than people would have liked with that Northern Iowa loss. And I remember he had no, like, it was one of those things where, yeah, he could have come back. Technically, I mean, the rules stipulated that he could because he was a junior. But you get, I, I don't think anybody would argue with why he left. You were you were for sure going to be a first-round pick. That's life-changing money. So, But I have no doubt that it was still a difficult thing for him to do. And I'll never forget when he, when he was making an announcement, he said, it's good to see everybody. Glad my family's here, my coaches. And then he kind of he realized you know, everything, and he kind of started getting choked up, but he kind of threw a smile, said, all my favorite media people. <laughs> when I was, I, I was, I was watching that press conference as a fan, not a member of the media, but I, that's something I always remember about Cole Aldridge. Yeah, one of the nicest guys. I love every time we get a chance to talk to uh, Cole, which usually we get to during round ball classic season. He's always such a big proponent of that and, and such a big help, I know, for Brian. Uh, from that end, so we'll talk with Cole coming up here. In about 20 minutes. We Saw are. him after a Gabriel Iglesias show once, by the way. Ah, big at, Gabriel. At the at the lead center. I We went to the show, and then we were in the lobby after the show. And I th- and this was It's hard at, to miss Cole Aldridge, well, And right? this was after the... This was fall of 08. So it was the, the fall after the, the national title season. And so it was already hard to miss him. And then on top of that, he'd had that amazing performance in the Final Four. So everybody knew who he was. And, of course, that was the year he really came out. And, and he had... Um, that that was the year that uh, he, this, he was a second team All American that year. Yeah, his sophomore year he had he he became the first player since Shaq to have a, a triple double with blocks in the NCAA tournament. He did it against Dayton in the second round. Impressive stuff. Uh, so here's where we are in the Final Four. Obviously, we all know Kansas moving on, excitingly so. Uh, taking on Villanova and Houston gets by Arizona. Takes on Villanova. Two kind of similar teams. Houston could not buy a three point attempt. They could not really buy a shot. Villanova enters this game, though. Justin Moore gets injured, tears his Achilles in the final minutes of that game, which is horrible for him. He's the team leader in minutes. I think he's second on the team in points. He's a really good player, does a lot for that team. Um, It's kind of funny because I think both in terms of Kansas and Villanova, you have two teams who have been great to college basketball over the last, whatever, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it's been, and both have kind of been a little bit slept on to this point in the tournament. 
Yeah, this like, tournament very much Villanova. Yeah, yeah, because Villanova, even though they were the year they won it in eighteen, they were the number two overall seed. But I think a lot of people viewed them as the tournament favorite. I can't even remember who the one overall was that year. Um, Virginia. Right? Oh well, yeah, and so yes, yeah, yeah. so, yes, you're right. And then as soon as Virginia, people thought highly of them. But then after they like by the Sweet Sixteen, it was all about Nova that year, and rightly so. They were bowling through people. Mm-hmm. They became the first team and however long to win all their games in a tournament um, by double digits. They're fantastic. But, yeah, you're right. This year's team was kind of, all right, they're two seed, but everybody kind of was talking about a Gonzaga-Arizona national title uh, because they were so highly rated, not just in their rankings, but they were viewed even amongst years with with one seeds. They were viewed as great one seeds amongst one seeds. And so um, – yeah, a lot of people forgot about Nova, and they just did what they do. They kept winning. They've got a great coach. Um, they've got a great point guard. Yeah, they, they've they've comparatively to this year. Yeah, they've yeah. Colin Gillespie is is fantastic. Um, it is funny because um, that's really like as we look at the other three teams, and, and this was something we talked about before the the tournament happened. Like normally every year we talk about how guard play wins in March and having that lead guard is so important. And that, that was the case for Villanova. Colin Gillespie is maybe the best lead guard in the country this year, which, you know, he's he's a really good guard, but in other years he might not be the best. He might not be viewed as one of the top three. And then you look at the other three teams, and they're all teams who had questions about their point guard play at some point in the season, but, had but they're all teams the who tournament. figured it out in the yep, tournament. R.J. Davis was not really the starting point guard. It was Caleb Love through most of the season for North Carolina. They made the switch. R.J. Davis takes over. Boom. Uh, Duke, Jeremy Roach has just taken off in the tournament. KU, Remy Martin's emergence. Yeah. They, uh, By the way, North Carolina, I think a lot of people are – now I think Duke's going to beat them – but I think a lot of people are underrating them. One because of their seed and their their record. Their, their seed was deserved. I mean, I'm not saying they got underseeded by any means, but I think a lot of people are focusing too hard on that game in Cameron because it was such a, a dominant game. And what they're overlooking is the fact that North Carolina is 16 and three in their last 19 games. They're, they've been one of the best teams in the country. Uh, really since that loss to Wake Forest. They had a disappointing showing in the ACC tournament. But other than that, they have been, since that loss to Wake Forest, they have been a great basketball team. Yeah. Um. So they're, and, and I think that has a lot to do with it, was that they've kind of figured out um, who they are, um, and they're getting great guard play, which, which matters. And, yeah, you're right, Villanova, it's funny, because Villanova, of the four teams in the Final Four, was the only team that had every question answered from a lead guard standpoint. Um, and then the other four teams that are now in the Final Four got great production from lead guards once the tournament started. They just had more question marks there. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the Duke-North Carolina game is going to basically take up the entirety of the national conversation, yeah. right? Which, how much should we concern ourselves with? I, I've never really been one to care. I've never really been somebody who's like, I can't believe they talked about this team for five minutes and talked about uh, our team for one minute, right? I, I kind of look at it's it. just silly. If anything, I like it, you well, know? I, I agree. And then I also think about it like, um, to make a, fa- a comparison of another team I'm, fa- I'm a fan of, people would get worked up when so, oh, so-and-so said, this guy's a better quarterback than Patrick Mahomes. And it's like, 
okay, but I don't think that, right. and I don't care if they think that. It doesn't change the fact that Patrick Mahomes plays for the team I cheer for, mm-hmm. and I'm happy that he does. So, like, it doesn't – I lose nothing by the fact – and Kansas as a team loses nothing, and Villanova, same. Lose nothing by the fa- to the fact that, that nobody's going to care about – or not as many people will care as much about that game as they will the late game. Um, let it happen. That's fine. Um, it's interesting too, that if we go back to the, the, the final four, the, not the final four, the national champion, um, parameters that we set of teams that could make the, the, the national title Are they or all? that they could win the national title. I'm sorry. Uh, it was they, Gonzaga, Kentucky, Villanova, Kansas, obviously Gonzaga and Kentucky are out. And North Carolina had the first quite had the first coach thing in the, in their, in yeah. their, in their, um, in their midst. Yeah. Um, so if Duke but, wins. But here's the thing. So hypothetically, that would tell you that the winner of Kansas Villanova should win the title. There you go. However, here is the problem. So during those parameters, one of the ones I set, it was 18 of the last 19 national champions. Yeah, because UConn and 14 kept getting in the way. Well, this was this was actually a different one. 18 of the nine, last 19 national champions since 2002 have had top 37 defenses entering the tournament on Ken Palm-adjusted defensive efficiency. And the one exception was Baylor from last year. They were 44th. And so I just said, well, there have been, you know, the next two lowest teams were 37th. 44th is kind of the aberration because last year's Baylor was a COVID year. They didn't play as many games. The defense was in the top 37, and then they had the COVID pause. They were fantastic before their COVID pause. They came back, and the defense struggled. So realistically, they were a top 37 defense. So I said, you know what? We won't take that one. We'll, We'll take it as the aberration. Duke entered the tournament with the 44th best defense, which would have tied last year's Baylor. So if Duke does end up winning it, I think that's just me reading the parameters wrong. Could be. Maybe 44 is the number. Yeah. Or it's fixed. But it also, this would be, well, Duke, this has been a path that they did in in 2015. They were 37th on defense, which was tied for the lowest until Baylor last year. Mm -hmm. And then they just ramped it up for three weeks. Um, I I think it's been less about the defense so far in the tournament for them and more about the offense. They're up to number one in Ken Palm yeah. and adjusted offense efficiency. They have the best offense in the Final Four this week. Kansas actually has the number two offense in the Final Four this week. This is what's crazy, though. If you go through the Ken Palm, uh, the adjusted defensive efficiency ranks for the team still remaining, Kansas is number one now. And, and part of it is because the defense was really good in the NCAA tournament so far. Outside of the threes that Creighton was hitting, Defense was good in that game. They limited their twos. Providence game. Defense was great. They did struggle a little bit with the middle ball screens and Al Durham in the middle and stuff for Providence in the second half. But overall, defense was great in that game. Defense, great in the second half in that Miami game. They weren't bad in the first half, but it was fantastic in the second half. So they've bumped up all the way to being the highest-ranked defense of the teams remaining. That is incredible. That's crazy. From where we started Really, the tournament from where we were a month ago, from where we were two months ago, talking about is the defense going to be what holds this team back? And right now they now are the it's best, the best defense in of the final the four, four teams remaining. That tells me two things: one, they did a fantastic job of locking down, and two, defense doesn't matter that much. No, no, not as much as offense. Yeah, I mean, how not, many- look, you Purdue, you know, you you can't be Purdue lost. And and look, St. Peter's is a fantastic story. Um, but Purdue also yeah. There's always a line, and yeah, they cross the line. Purdue, we kept comparing to twenty, comparing to 2012 Missouri. Amazing offense, 
but if they're going to be hampered in the in the tournament, it's because their defense is ranked in the nineties or the one hundreds. Um, so you don't you can't have a, a putrid defense. But I think what we're seeing more and more is that you have to have you if you can pick one. And we said this a lot of the year. We said this back in November. Um, if you if you can pick the side of the ball to struggle on, if you can be great on one side and be just fine on the other, you would pick the great to be the offensive side and the okay to be the defensive side. Well, I just see, like, how many games in the NCAA tournament did you see a team lose where they went on? And and I get it. KU has not been devoid of this, and KU's offense has not been as elite until really the second half in, in Miami in the tournament. But how many teams have you seen, like, the graphic pop up two points in ten minutes? And again, yeah. we, we had seen that a couple times in the regular season, but not as consistently as maybe these other teams. And again, Houston goes like one of 20 from three against Villanova. They can't buy a three. They can't win that game. Remember when you – go ahead, sorry. No, no. That's, well, that's, I just Remember when you brought up how much would it help Kansas from a rest standpoint that the breaks are longer in the tournament? And one thing I noticed is not just the under 16, under you know the media timeouts, under every four minutes um, are longer. It's that the, the, the called timeouts are longer. Full timeouts are longer than a minute in the tournament and they're longer than they are in the regular season. Um, but I also wonder, I thought that was a good point to bring up for KU because they had players that were kind of, you know, not full on injured, but, but nicked up. Um, but do you think it, it curves teams like momentum and keeps them from going on freakish runs sometimes? And that could <sighs> be why I don't know, because maybe, maybe we, you know, is it seems like we don't see this every tournament, which would lead me to believe, no, that's not the case because the, mm-hmm. the breaks are just as long this tournament as they have in all the recent ones. So it would lead me to believe, no, but it is interesting that this tournament has featured a lot of, you know, zero field goals for eight-minute stretches. It seems... Yeah. I don't know. It's definitely possible. It very much is. Um, hmm. Would you agree with me when I say I think... Um, Athletically, Kansas matches up pretty well against Nova and not at all against Duke. <laughs> yeah, Duke, uh, yeah, if we're just looking at the matchups here, um, North Carolina plays a stretch five. Well, sort of. Brady Manick actually kind of plays the forks. They play a lot of our man. I'd, put Jaylen, I'd actually put Jalen Wilson. So that might him. actually be okay. Um, Duke has two legit bigs. Mark Williams, Dave plays better against traditional bigs. But really I don't know good. about Mark Williams because Mark Williams is going to be like a borderline lottery pick. He has a seven four wingspan. They have what Bill Self would call dudes. Yes, and they then have, they're they have dudes. Like it, it basically, it, it'd be kind of similar, honestly, to the twenty eighteen game where you're going to have to have some. Like Sfee stepped up that game. He had ten rebounds uh, against true, Marvin yeah. Bagley. So you're going to need Jalen Wilson, J- Christian yeah, Brown to step yeah, up if yeah. that if that happens, right? The Villanova um, matchup. I think KU matches. Now look, Villanova could very well win, and I you know. They've had their number a lot lately. The mm-hmm. only time KU beat them was by four or five in Allen Fieldhouse a few years ago. In, in, of the recent matchups, they obviously beat them in 08. But I actually think, I don't look at Villanova. I guess, I just mean, Duke is a team that scares you from the moment they get off the bus. Yeah. 
I don't see that with Nova. They, no, they've Villanova got really will beat you by players. just you know playing sound basketball. Yeah. They, they have a short rotation. It got shorter without Justin Moore. They were basically playing six guys. Now it's basically, I don't know, they might have to deepen it a little bit. Um, it is scary. Villanova does play a lot of Jermaine Samuels at the five, and that is very similar to when Baylor would play Jeremy Sohan at the five. Mm-hmm. Which We saw what happened in Waco. Yeah, that's very much not good for KU. It does help that they have a whole week to prepare for that, though. Oh. Um and it also, Villanova likes to really post up their guards and back down their guards. And, uh, you know, I think that might not be great for KU, who has two very short guards. But outside of that, Villanova's not a team that probably is, like, this isn't the same Villanova team that they're going to probably just hit 12 threes on you. Uh, this, I think, is going to be a close game. The key is, can you stay up late? Because they are the best free throw shooting team in NCAA history. All right, we're going to take a uh, timeout here. We have our NCAA tournament vignette as well. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Joined now by a very special guest, Cole Aldridge, who was a member of the 2008 Kansas Final Four team, and this team repeating that success of making it on to the Final Four. Uh, first things before we get started, Cole, how's everything going? What have you been up to lately? Uh, everything has been great. Um, you know, spring here in Minnesota is finally getting out of our deep freeze and trying to get outside and enjoy it a little bit. Um, I have a two-year-old that it's just you know continue to keep me busy yeah that's that's a uh, busy age to say the least i have a uh, <laughs> couple nephews around that age and uh they, they're fun but yeah definitely a handful um so so ku makes it to the final four obviously your you know kind of coming out party for kansas was in that final four game against north carolina uh, what was that like for you? I mean, were you expecting coming into the game that your number could be called, or was that just kind of a, a surprise when you heard your name get get called? Like, hey, you're coming in the game, and and we need you to play this well against you know Tyler Hansborough, one of the best big men in the country. Yeah, you know when I look back at the whole kind of scenario of my freshman year, it, it's probably much different now than what I was experiencing at that time. You know, when we played Nebraska senior night at home, we blew them out by like 40. And I ended up having my first double-double of my career that night. And I think that kind of was maybe the tipping point of like maybe me having a little more confidence. And, you know, I played in every game that year and getting to the tournament, not really knowing what to expect, but kind of as we advanced, knowing, you know, the the whole um, kind of stress level and magnitude of everything really gets heightened. Getting to the Final Four, I mean, there, there was so much kind of storylines behind everything because this is the first time KU played Roy since he had left. So the fans kind of had a little bit of, animosity towards that um so you know it was a really big game and i don't know if i really expected to play i probably i think that year i averaged eight or ten minutes so i didn't play a whole lot um and then we got in foul trouble and coach i always joke 
who coached and I'm like, he probably looked down at the bench at Dooley and thought, ah, sh- we got to get through this half and Cole's <laughs> the only one that's going <laughs> to give us some minutes. So let's, let's hope he does something good. And, you know, I, I, end, you know, I ended up playing really well and um, kind of helped break the game open to half, but it, it kind of looking back at it now, it, it, it looks differently than maybe than what I was in that situation. Cole, I'm kind of curious because the the storyline going into that year, I, I know that the team before, which would have been your senior year in high school, had come up short in the Elite Eight, and, and the storyline going into that tournament was that Self had yet to make the Final Four, and I wasn't working as a media member, but observing as a fan, I know Self always kind of deflected that and said, well, it's about the players and the program and things like that, but did you guys amongst yourselves feel some sort of, of, if not obligation, at least desire to help him get, get through that barrier. I, oh, I definitely, I definitely felt that during that time because, you know, B rush came back, um, you know, other guys were, you know, kind of on the fringe of leaving. Everybody kind of ended up saying, and, felt like, well, you know, this is the one last hurrah as, you know, potentially being able to win it. And then things, you know, were going to look different after, after um, all the seniors had graduated and all that. So, you know, I, I kind of felt that, you know, we went to a stretch, we lost two of three, we lost at K-State and lost at Oklahoma State. And I remember feeling like the world was ending. And, you know, at that time we were probably 27 and two, <laughs> you know, so, like, which is crazy to think about now when you, know, you win that many games and lose that few of games, the world was definitely not coming to an end, but, you know, coach self kind of made us feel that way and, and put the pressure on us, you know, because he knew what the tournament was going to be like and what we were up against. You know, kind of going off that same point, it's been noted that, you know, the toughest round by record for for Bill Self has been that Elite Eight game. And I I can't help but think every time I think of that 2008 season, one of the first images that comes to mind for me is when you guys beat Davidson in the Elite Eight and you you see Bill Self on the sideline kind of fall to his knees and, and hit his hand on the ground and slap the floor and kind of fall to the ground like it it just felt like a a moment of pure not even necessarily joy just almost relief from him Mm -hmm. um did you kind of like was there a noticeable difference in how it felt going into that elite eight game versus the final four well i think that you know when we played i think we played nova in the sweet 16 and then we played davidson in the elite eight and you know that that Davidson game was tough because we had you know Steph Curry was there, and they had a really good team. Um, you know they they weren't super talented, but knew you know this is the Elite Eight. You know any team at this point is going to be really good. And kind of getting over that hump. Um, I, I remember the last play. Oddly enough, it was a switch. Brandon fell on the ground, tried to get up, and then they ended up passing Steph. Curry passed the ball to their other point guard who ended up shooting their final shot, um, which was like super crazy to think about now, you know, 
14 years later. Um, but feeling that monkey off his back, I think had have been huge relief. And then getting to the final four, it was kind of like, well, yes, we should be here and we deserve to be here, but you know, we're kind of playing on house money in a way. The, uh, I'm, I'm curious the last minute of that game, because as a fan, I was watching and, and I, and maybe you can blame me for this, that I, I, I jinxed it because I felt an immense sense of relief because I remember Kansas was up 59-54 with the, uh, under a minute left, and I'm like, all right, it's two possessions. It's going to be okay. And then there was a great play on an inbounds pass. Curry can to three, and that's what brought it back to um, uh, to a two-point game. And I think the next Kansas possession resulted in a shot clock violation. Was there was whether it be in that moment or throughout that whole game, was there ever like, oh my God, can we just shake these guys and run away with it already, or was it, was it, you know, did you ever think let's just finish them, or was it you know annoying that they kept hanging around? I guess. You know, it's it's funny because that's kind of it's kind of how the tournament has gone for us um, in so many aspects. I mean, even even the game last night felt like well okay we didn't really play a great half and then you know we we finally kind of like got out and got over the hump broke the game open and then there's always that little bit of nervousness when they cut it to 10 and you're like ah oh, are, are they going to get back into this or are we not and you know it's kind of one of those games where you sit back and you're like Man, if you just had, if you didn't have that shot clock violation and you, and you had a, a shot at the rim, whether it goes in or not, you know, it still takes time off of the clock. So, you know, those kind of little things, even looking back now, understanding the game more, you kind of sense like, man, <laughs> those are the tournament games. And that is why March is so stressful. One of the things about the Final Four that we've seen come up in, in many renditions with it being played at these giant football stadiums and the different backdrops that you get from, you know, just shooting. Was that very noticeable for you? I mean, maybe it was different for you because you're a post player. I, I, I don't know. Um, is that something you guys talk about in the week leading up? So when we went, we were in Ford Field in Detroit for the Elite Eight and the Sweet Six, or Sweet 16 and Elite Eight. Um, and they had a raised floor. And Ford Field is, I mean, it is massive. And it just like the, you know, I always think of like football arenas kind of going more vertical and out. This was like a long, gradual, just, I mean, you could be on the on the 100 level and, and be way back. So it, it was super weird in that aspect. And then, you know, fast forwarding to, San Antonio, it is kind of weird because you have stands on one side and then you have people on the, the whole stands. And it, it's, it kind of reminds me of like Syracuse that they play in the dome. And it's such a unique thing that you don't do unless you get kind of later in the tournaments because you know, you play, you play in arenas, usually that first round. So you kind of have to adjust. And I think we spent a bunch of time shooting and working on those things because, you know, depth perception is huge when you're shooting. 
I'm kind of curious, heading into the Final Four, I, one of the first things that, that Bill Self said when he arrived at his very first press conference was he laid out an open invitation to any previous uh, KU player, whether it be in the Roy era, the Larry Brown era, Ted Owens era, all the way back. <laughs> did did you get did, – did people like Nick Collison, Kirk Heinrich, guys that had – had tons of success wearing the Kansas uniform, but understandably would have had some personal loyalty to Roy Williams. Did you, did, did those guys reach out to you since that was the first final four since, since the Roy era came to an end? You know, the, the one guy that I remember notably seeing around was like Scott Pollard. And, you know, I think Scott probably was living in Lawrence at that time. Um, so he was kind of around the program a little bit. I know, you know, as, as being a teammate of Nick Collison's for a few years, you know, I know Coach Self did a great job at including all of those guys, you know, whether they played for Tad or Roy or, you know, even now him in his earlier days. You know, he's really created a great sense of community and kind of a family. You know, he's like, I don't care if you played in the 70s or if you played in the 2000s or now in the 2020s, you know, you wore this jersey and you're part of our family. And he has done just a great job of inviting guys back and having them kind of come through and watch practice and everything is just, it's all open, you know, that I think kind of separates Kansas from other programs where we have a ton of guys that are either playing in the NBA or playing overseas. Schedules are crazy. And you may not see a guy for like six, seven years, and then all of a sudden he comes back, and it's like he's never left. You know, he he's just welcomed. You know, you mentioned how with your Final Four it was crazy. You have all the one seeds. It's no other one seed in the Final Four this year, but uh, certainly it almost has that feeling to it when you have Duke, Villanova, and North Carolina surrounding the Final Four with Kansas. Uh, I don't really know if I have a question here with this, but just how kind of wild was that with uh, all the different one seeds in there, and do you think that all is, is going to be kind of similar to how this year is going to go just in terms of the environment and everything around it? You know, when I look at the Final Four as a whole this year, I mean, the storylines, I think, are great. You have Carolina and Duke. I mean, that in itself is take away Coach K's, you know, last season. You know, that in itself is a huge deal. And, you know, KU played Villanova, I guess the last time that I think of it, is when we beat them in the Sweet 16. Jay Wright's a fantastic coach. Um <clears throat> You know, you always, it is kind of weird not to see these four teams be number one seeds because, quite honestly, it's kind of weird that they're not. You know, if they, if another team were in the Final Four, you know, you would say, well, you know, they're still a high seed, but you don't think of Duke or Carolina not being a one seed, even though Duke is a two seed, but. Um, 
I feel like this Final Four is just going to be it's going to be so much fun to watch. Probably going to bring back a lot of memories from my Final Four because we were the first and I guess the only to ever have all number one seeds in the Final Four. All right, Cole. Well, I appreciate you hopping on today. Before we let you go, we do a fun little segment at the end of all our interviews with my producer and co-host, Adam, called One Last Thing with Adam. All right, Cole, one last thing. Do you still try to intimidate people by popping that tooth out like you did when you were at KU? <laughs> you know, I finally got it fixed. Good I got for it you. fixed this past, um, this past fall. It was 12 years, I think, in the making, and it took... It took a little over two years to do the whole process of doing a gum graft and bone graft. And it's, it it was a long process and I can't intimidate people anymore or get (laughs) free drinks at the bar. (laughs) Well, that's all right. Probably worth it. Now did, did the NBA, the good dental insurance from the NBA hopefully covered that? You know, unfortunately didn't. It was one of those things that, yeah, I, it, I, I imagine it probably cost me ten or fifteen grand, but Ooh. you know, for the whole thing to get done with, I'm more than happy to pay it because it was fun. But now I'm getting a little too old. To have <laughs> <this interview. laughs> there you go. Well, uh, Cole, I appreciate it. I appreciate you hopping on, and uh, thank you for the time. Of course, thanks, guys. All right, that was Cole Aldridge, former KU basketball legend and uh, member of the 2008 Final Four National Championship team. Boy, did he have a big game. And wouldn't that be fun if KU were to do what that team did in the, uh, well, whole season, but in that first game as well. All right, he's Adam Gravett. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017-1320-KLWN. Coming up next, we're going to play the rest of that postgame presser from the Elite Eight game yesterday.